The Ashtanga Dispatch podcast is made possible by friends and listeners like you. All of you who have generously made donations or purchased one of our shirts or magazines, without you and your support, your friendship, there would be no Ashtanga Dispatch in any form. Even sharing or posting reviews on iTunes, it helps. Please visit ashtangadispatch.com to make a donation or to learn more ways you can support. Thank you. Welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast. I'm Peg Mulqueen. And I'm Megan Powell. Megan, if you were going to describe today's guest, Mary Taylor, before we ever met her, what would you say? She's one of the few older women that's been practicing Ashtanga yoga consistently. For like 30 years. Maybe more. Maybe. And she's married to Richard Freeman. You know, before this year, Mary wasn't out there a whole lot. Yeah, especially solo. But I've been wanting to interview Mary for years now because of what you first said. She's one of the few female Ashtanga yoga teachers who's maintained her practice not only through the years, but through pregnancy, through menopause, and a pretty serious illness. Which surprised me because no one knew. Yeah, there were a lot of surprises in this podcast. Mary shared a lot of herself, like sharing her own experiences with trauma and sexual abuse. You know, I don't meet many people who are as open and honest as she is. Would you agree? I would totally agree. She's someone who genuinely reflects and really does the work without rushing to conclusions. Yeah. Or maybe coming to a conclusion, but looking at it again, uh, gaining more insight, changing her own perspective. Whereas other people, like me, would love to just close the chapter and move on. Uh, Me too. (laughs) But... You're sort of referring to the series of blogs she's written on the sexual abuse allegations against Patabi Joyce, yes? Yeah, but also with us sharing her own experiences that caused emotional pain that came out as physical pain. She doesn't just put these things out there for herself, but to help others. She's someone who has the courage and compassion to share her own evolution. I totally agree. I have to say, the conversation we had with Mary... It's had a profound effect on me. And the timing of this episode, though, the timing, it feels like synchronicity. Why? Because in the news, there's yet another woman talking about her sexual assault. She's not the first, and unfortunately, she won't be the last. But at least now, thanks to all the women who are speaking up, there's a feeling that you're just not alone. You're not alone in this, and there's freedom and safety in that. Yeah. And as Mary explains, healing too. Shall we go ahead and stop talking about the interview and let everyone listen? Probably. Okay. Here's Mary Taylor. Gosh, it's been a few years since I first wrote you. Yeah. Right? That's how it is with us. (laughs) And you said yes immediately. Yeah. But you're quite busy. (laughs) And it's just, you know, timing is always like if you can catch us at the right moment. 
I remember I became intrigued when I first wrote you. It was Olivia Seward was at my house. Right. So she was with us. Right. I remember mm-hmm. that. For a weekend. And all she did, <laughs> she did. She spoke a lot about you. And it just, it, what an amazing influence you've been in her life and in her practice. And I remember sitting listening to her thinking, I've never had a teacher who was a woman. <laughs> like, especially in Ashtanga Yoga. Yeah. Like, I just... There are so few. So few. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a curious thing. I mean, it's... On some levels, I remember way back... Should we start the interview? Is this oh, the it's already started. We're okay. <laughs> <laughs> way back, like when I was first being introduced to it, um, there was this discussion, and they're probably still... That that discussion probably still goes on. Of you know, oh, this isn't for women, and it's too it male oriented, etc. And um, I, you know, I've never bought into that because it doesn't feel that way at all to me. To me, it is a practice that is is really liberating for women if you can approach it without being um, dogmatic. And, you know, as a woman in my 60s now, having practiced for over 30 years, it just feels like I'm still thinking, you know, are there new poses I want to do? But each time I practice, it goes way beyond, you know, that's part of what is interesting and fun and keeps me intrigued. But that's such a small part of it. And because I came to it super stiff, like one of the stiffest people on the planet. Truly. Really? Yes, truly. I'll <laughs> tell you <clears throat> that, you know, to me, to be able to still do it is just like amazing. Like, you know, anything I can do now just makes me go, wow, you know, this isn't where I started. Whereas someone like Richard who comes to it, or Ty who come to it yes. with, you know, the body that's designed for it, then as they get older, it's like, oh dear, what happened? For, for me, it's like, wow, amazing. And then going through all these things like pregnancy and I had a very serious um, autoimmune disease, which I still have, that made it impossible to practice. And, but the practice has supported me through so much of it um, and approaching it from the... Pr- so for me, it was easy to approach it from the perspective of it's the internal practice that actually cultivates the changes. And then the part that keeps me coming back is this fun part of, well, maybe today I'll be able to do whatever pose, you know. And so that, that to me, has never made sense. Like, you, if you approach it as you have to do it in this particular way with these, meaning uh, force yourself into poses that don't work for you, um, that that's, that seems to be the sort of uh, dogmatic, which is then interpreted as a male perspective. It isn't really the male perspective, but if you want to, you can interpret it as that. And so I never related to it because I was just, it was not possible. So the very first time I went to Mysore um, and I went into the room um, and it was very small, you know, like, four or five people, and I was really nervous. I'd never done primary series. I'd never, I kind of had, I had taken the pictures of the primary series out of Light on Yoga, 
I still even have this. And I'd Xeroxed them and cut them out and pasted them on. You it. made your own cheat I sheet. I made my own cheat sheet. <laughs> and I was like, what's the name of this one? <laughs> and um, I, you know, walked in, did up to like Parivrita Parshvakonasana or something, and Patavijay says, okay, you go sit down. So, which is what he would say when it's like, okay, that person's had enough. You. So I, you know, like before we even got to seated poses, he sat me down. And then I went into the room later, his study, and I, you know, just stood there. I didn't know what to say, so I just kind of stood there thinking, you know, like what's going on. And that's when he said to me, you know, only first thing he said was, "But why is it so stiff?" <laughs> and I was like, gave him this look of bewilderment, and then. Um, you know, then he said, oh, very strong mind, and uh, which I interpreted wrong. And I thought, oh, cool, I'm smart. And then that's like, not what he meant. That's not what no. he meant at all. <laughs> okay, because I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's where I started. So that's why I say for me to be able to have started there, it wasn't like I was, you know, the star student. I was the stiff student and the one and yet he worked with me where I was and he changed postures as I needed them changed you know meaning my legs farther apart or closer together in triangle pose or you know gazing at my you know changing the gazing point when I couldn't actually twist enough to have my gazing point in the right place and etc and so that's what I interpreted as being how you did Ashtanga yoga. And part of my theory about Ashtanga, or anything, really is, you know, like I went to India in whatever year it was, like 1987, 88, <clears throat> 87, and um, the first time. And that's when, to me, that's when my source began. That's when the city started. That's when yoga began. I mean, it was just like, because it's my perspective, I thought that's when it all started. And so that's how I see it, saw it as all starting, as it's not a rigid thing, it's a thing that has flexibility to it in terms of how we approach it to make it work for different people. So that's how it has worked for me with this stiff body that over the course of these however many years has, you know, stretched out a little bit. Um, but I haven't done it in terms of uh, forcing poses because I know I would have injured myself. It's so interesting to hear you <clears throat> speak about how you began because it's such a different experience that I had because I do feel like it's I, only up until the last couple of years, I'm like, you know, I think I, I practice like a man. Yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> like I practice like a man and there were a lot of things it's taken a shoulder having a lot of shoulder issues um to make me step back and think what am i doing that's bringing more stress to this area Mm -hmm. and that whole freedom that you're talking about coming in and being able to explore and create a practice that is good for you 
was not yeah. w- the way I was brought into it. Well, and it's not, though, that you then, I mean, and this is a really important point. For me, personally, what has worked has not been to say, well, oh, I don't like that pose or that one's right. just, you know, to use this overall structure and not abandon the structure of the primary series or intermediate series or whatever, um, or the breath, moving with the breath and the gaze and the, you know, sort of awareness of the pelvic floor, etc. So it's not that you just say, oh, well, today I think I'm just going to focus on backbends because that's what I feel like. <laughs> it's that you say, okay, well, this is my limit here. And then how do I show up for that? What do I do with, and what do I know about my own sensibility, my own personality, which is, in my case, someone who's, uh, who tends to push themselves too hard, who tends to, I often say this, but like, you know, I'll see a brick wall, and I think, well, I gotta get to the other side of it, so I just put my head down, <laughs> and I run, and then I bounce off. And so I think, well, that didn't work, and so I back up, and I then put my head down. <laughs> Try more of the Try same. Try more of the same thing. <laughs> And so that I know about myself is, is how I am with things. And so for me to then try to, um, mo- you know, try to recognize that, I don't know if you want to close that because of the noise, how I, um, if I want to try to modify things, what I do is keep that in mind. Am I doing it because I'm afraid? Because that was the other thing Padre Joyce used to always say to me is, you know, why fearing? Which I know he said to a lot of people. But I was afraid, you know, in the beginning I was going to just snap into ten pieces. And I had a lot of psychological baggage, as everyone does, showing up. And so that was why I was fearing, was because I, um, you know, was afraid I was going to hurt myself or I was afraid of showing myself my true psychological state. Um, and so for me to s- recognize that that sense of stiffness and fear and psychological makeup is how I'm showing up every day is what's made the practice work for me on a deep level, but that it's also made the body uh, slowly learn how to stretch out and release. So that body armoring isn't part of my practice anymore, but it took a long time. That's so interesting to hear you say this, because talking about the psychological patterns, how they show up in the way the body moves, like mine, you were talking about yours, the the brick wall, mine is, I stop short. Yeah. Like, well, I've gotten close to getting there. <laughs> Oh, oh, good enough. Good enough. <laughs> we'll stop here. So I have to keep myself in check to say, hey, did I, am I really yeah. tired? Am I, is this real or am I just afraid? And it's the same thing. It's fear, mm-hmm. just like you were saying, mm-hmm. maybe fear of going too far, fear of failing. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've gotten here. It's been good. Yeah. Let's call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, yeah. Yeah. And that's so important with our practice to recognize in ourselves is what, and that will change over time or under circumstances. And why am I that way now? And 
and rat and from like I know we you studied Gestalt. I worked my degree was in Gestalt, and then I worked in a Gestalt center after school after graduating. And um, the Gestalt perspective is not so much why is all this happening, but what is happening right in this moment. Mm-hmm. And that's been very valuable for me to translate into this, which of course is yoga and Buddhism to begin with. It's like what's going on right before your eyes. You know, what is what is the direct experience of what we're having at this moment? And that's what we're really trying to get to with these practices. One of the big things. So why do you think it is that you're really one of the few few women I can think of that has been consistently practicing. I, I'm asking the question because I've been looking and it does seem like there are a lot of women, like if you look at the women now who are my age, your age, that are teachers or prominent, you know, figureheads, they started with Ashtanga, yeah. but often branched somewhere else yeah. and went somewhere else. And You know, it's a hard question as to why. I mean, I think what one of the reasons I've seen a lot of people leave is because they've gotten injured. And, um, or they um, have gotten distracted. So the injuries have come, you know, and one of my pet peeves about people who might have gotten injured and then go into some other, other form of yoga and when they teach they say, oh, well, in Ashtanga you get injured, um, is that, that that's a pet peeve of mine because that's not true. In, in life, of course, you're going to get injured if you, you know, do things wrong. And so if in Ashtanga yoga you get sore shoulders or a sacrum issue or whatever, it's not the Ashtanga yoga that has done that to you necessarily. Conceivably, you've gotten an assist from an unskilled assistant and that could have done it, or you have been, in my case, very stubborn and pushed yourself through and injured yourself. Um, But it's not the yoga it's some circumstance within the practice of the yoga. And with Ashtanga, to me, the reason it actually is the counter version of that is that if you are doing the same thing over and over for however long it's been for me, many, you know, 30, 35 years, um, if you're doing that over and over again, day after day, you notice, oh, today it's this way, tomorrow, you know, yesterday was such and such, and the day before it was such and such, and you realize it's never the same. It's, even though the postures look the same on a, that sheet of paper that I made the first day I went there, <laughs> um, how I show up, my circumstances, physically, mentally, emotionally, and in terms of what's happening in the world, are different every single time I'm there so that it becomes a, a, an opportunity to meditate on um, showing up for those differences rather than trying to make it be the same thing day after day. So if I've tweaked my shoulder, then I think, well, what, am I, what can I do to make it feel good? And it might be that, oh, I'd forgotten to ground my hand in a certain way, or, oh, you know, I had over-pushed in a certain way, 
Or, oh yeah, I fell down off my bike and hurt my shoulder, and then I kept on doing exactly what I was doing before. And so, to me, that's a pet peeve of mine, and I, I'm, I'm happy for people that they're still doing yoga if they've come to yoga through Ashtanga, and probably they're doing what works for them. But the thing that, for me, has been important about Ashtanga is that by having that structure, in addition to giving me the opportunity to see what's happening each day, it gives me the opportunity to not avoid what I would typically avoid. And so on that first trip to Mysore, that's what really struck me, was that I had been to you know, psych- psychology in university was my major, I'd worked in a gestalt center, I'd been through difficult times in my life, I'd been through therapy, and the therapy things that I had done or being in school, I could always kind of get almost to the heart of things. And then it's a little bit like what you're saying, and then just say, oh, but, you know, good enough. And then move on. Whereas in Mysore, I decided it was important for me to really do it the way I was being taught and not do that. That was a mental choice and a, a conscious choice I made that time. And so when I went this one day and said, oh, look, you know, my leg has this big bruise on it, and I think I should, you know, I just said, what do you think? And Padre said, oh, very good. Next week, the other leg. And I, because I was thinking he'd let me out of practice that day, and I was just stunned that, and the bruise was from a cramp that I'd had in my leg because I was trying too hard to do Bhattakonasana or whatever, and that it had held a cramp for like nine hours afterwards. And so rather than um, saying not going that day to practice and and having Richard say, oh, it was ladies' holiday or whatever, I went (laughs) expecting that I would get off the hook and he didn't let me off the hook, but he also didn't push me. And by the end of that particular practice, I went into Shavasana and had this memory of an incident when I was a child, two years old, falling down some stairs when there was no adult around. Then I had another memory of a very traumatic experience that I was in the car when my mother had you know, been stopped by someone who was trying to uh, rape her. And um, the, these came back to me with details that I checked with my parents on, and they're saying, oh yeah, those are this is what was actually happening. And it made me realize these were patterns of holding in my body that I had been holding since I was almost pre-verbal. And this practice, because I hadn't gotten myself off the hook, and because I hadn't been pushed too hard that day, they allowed those patterns within my fascia within my nervous system to shift and postures that one day from one day to the next uh, there were in fact Bhattakonasana was the one where my knees were always like 10 inches off the floor and that day for some reason they went down to the floor and I remember Patri Joyce coming up to me and saying you know but why today and it was that I'm certain of it and so to me that was the data I needed to say there's something here that's much more than the fact that my knees came to the floor. 
So that's... There are things stored in our nervous system oh, that we're yeah. not even... No, no. We're not consciously aware of. Yeah, totally. And that's... I'm, I referenced having a, um, an autoimmune disease. And I am certain... I could tell you about the whole thing if you want. Yeah, I really actually yeah. am very interested. Yeah, so this was four years ago. So I'm 66. So this was when I was 62. And, you know, I've been doing yoga for a long time. And I, you know, kind of thought things were great and everything. And this one day I went in, I taught, I practiced my full practice. And I'd actually done third series that day. So I did. And the way I practice is what... And I still do to this day. What Padre Joyce taught me is you do primary. You do whatever series you're doing, but you alternate them. So one day, one day, one day, and then you start over. If, or if it's only one series, you do that. And I think these days it's more like you get to whatever series and you just keep doing that one. But for me, because of that's how he taught me, that's what I've always done. P.S. That is the, what I found has worked for oh, me, which amazing. is really odd. Yeah. I thought I was just making it up. Yeah, yeah, I was. We're all yeah, making it yeah. all. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's no, very validating great. to hear you say that's that. That's great. It because, works for my body. Yeah, and because they each have such different things they're doing within us. And then the final thing with that is when I've been through certain things, like knee reconstruction from ski, afterbirth, etc., that if you have more than one series, you can say, like with a knee injury, oh, well, what can I do that I don't have to put weight on my... And you go as much as primary as you can do, as much of second as you can do, etc. So that day I'd done my practice. I taught my sore that morning. I came home. I was on the phone. I started having a funny feeling in my upper arm. By four hours later, I was completely immobilized. I couldn't lift my arms. I couldn't, without, I mean, I couldn't even lift them. And it was excruciating pain in my arms, my hands, my feet, um, my jaw locked. I was just, it was horrible. And long story short, no one, my doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. After nine months, nine weeks of this level of pain, that it was just the worst pain I've ever had. And like I couldn't even pull my hair back. And we were supposed to have been going to India right then. And I... So everybody thought, oh, they're off in India having fun while I, in fact, was here, like, suffering, not able to... I couldn't pick up a fork or whatever. It was too much pain. And um, then I went finally to a rheumatologist. It had taken nine weeks to get an appointment. Wow. And they diagnosed me with rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease. Um, And... Uh, now I've worked with it, all kinds of things, including the yoga, um, to help me through that. But back to our point about the body storing stuff, in retrospect, when those nine weeks were going on, I was trying to figure out what had happened. Um, what, what I realized was, and this was an intuitive sense of things, but that I had been in a situation where I was helping to co-facilitate a sitting practice with 60 people in the room. The woman I was teaching with was doing a, a meditation on forgiveness, which I had been with her for many, many years teaching, and so I'd heard this many times and had done it many times. And So I was not like 
totally overwhelmed by that particular exercise because I, I was trying to hold space for others. But it was going on in the back of my mind, and suddenly, in the middle of that, um, I had this memory flood my system of a time when I was 19, which was over 40 years prior to that, where I'd gotten raped. And I'd never talked about it, except to a therapist at one point. And I thought, oh, it's out of my system when I talked to it. And, yeah, I lived, it's okay. And it came back and I realized, no, it wasn't finished in me. And so then it welled up within me, but I was holding space for others, so I didn't do anything. Till I stuffed it back. The circumstances were such due to the workshop that I was teaching that I couldn't really talk to anyone about it for eight days. So I just restuffed this memory that had tried to come out when my subconscious mind or whatever had released in a certain way or the circumstances were right, that I'd mem remembered every detail of this. And so my visceral sense of things is that that triggered this in me. Um, and, and that that's why, you know, I was probably prone to have this illness, but that that's why it had happened, because I had, something had come up and I had stuffed it back in, into an old pattern within my body. Isn't that what the, the stress is usually what triggers yeah. an autoimmune yeah. flare, like when you... Yeah. And so that was what I, and I didn't even at that time know that it was an autoimmune disease. I right. didn't know that stress did that, was it often a trigger for autoimmune diseases. And, um, and mine is unusual because I'm not, I haven't responded to natural, you know, to the things that normally people respond to. But I continue to practice every single day, even when I couldn't lift my arms up because and when I say that, it's like, well, what did your practice look like? Well, I couldn't put any weight on my hands or lift my arms over my head, but my hips worked. So I'd lean forward, hang my arms down, stand up, and, oh, your hands are over your head. And so then my arms would be over my head, and I could do acum. and But then I couldn't bring them back down, so then I'd have to just fold forward. And, and by not giving up, and by saying, well, what can I do, rather than, oh, there's nothing I can do. You know, I think that was a key thing that helped me find my path through this illness, which has, is a whole other story. Well, boy, I have so many thoughts going <laughs> through my head right now. Number one, I was thinking to myself as you were speaking, sometimes we think surviving is thriving like yeah. we think because we survived yeah. something that it's over yeah. like look exactly. i live a beautiful life everything is good yeah i'm healthy and yeah but and so i survived whatever it is but that's not the same yeah. as processing or letting it move through you right. truly letting it move through you that survival is is pushing past exactly right the wall Ignoring. i got through got through the wall and then the the other side of that problem is to then identify so thoroughly like had i been a slightly different person i could have identified for all of those years with the fact that i had a horrible thing happen to me and instead i chose to just ignore it and so you do run into people who then that becomes their whole identity. Mm -hmm. Oh dear. And then their lives reflect that. And yoga, 
whether it's Ashtanga yoga or any other form that people do, if you dig deeply down, yoga it gives us the capacity to not do either of those extremes, but to, so not to get stuck in it or ignore it, but to process it in the way that needs to be processed and to be respectful of one's own body, respectful of the situation, and also, you know, not know what the answers might be. Oh, that's so hard. (laughs) It's really hard. It's a matter of, it's really hard, and it takes a lot of trust in, in the process. And so to, you know, to, to really trust is hard, um, but it's important. It's that rebirthing of your practice that you went through in those stages. Mm-hmm. I, I, when you are faced with something, you do kind of have that conscious choice that you talked about. Mm-hmm. where you can either abandon this isn't for mm-hmm. me you know you could have easily said oh yeah this practice is not for me i think when i hit menopause that was my mm-hmm. it's, it's a little bit of an antagonist it's, mm-hmm. it almost pokes you and yeah. like antagonizes provokes you yeah provokes you <laughs> it does you know? provoke you it, there are times there are times it's lovely and it feels amazing and then there are times it really provokes your deepest fears or whatever it is but I I feel like when I got to menopause that was that time for me that those questions maybe this isn't for women to assert maybe this isn't or maybe yeah I'm done like this is what it's been a good ride it's been a good ride yep this is it we're we're done now we go backwards from here and it was hard for me to change my mindset and I won't say that it happened overnight it just made it was my conscious decision that I didn't want to stop yeah and so I had to rethink the way I was practicing from the very beginning yeah is that make like almost like what you're describing but in a different way absolutely and I think in fact that's how it should be practiced if we want to practice it till it you know beyond um, till the day we die. That's my theory is I'm going to, you know, and the practice means to tune into the subtleties within the body that are um, letting me wake up to what's happening in this moment. So the subtleties, the way to tune in for me has been to be conscious of the breath, the ends of the breath joining together, the power of the gaze and the power of those two things um, helping me to navigate physically embody my experience Um, and that um, that's what the practice represents to me because then it can you can dig down more deeply to be able to understand some of the things like the ancient texts or and some of the things that are talked about, say, in the Upanishads or the Gita or the Yoga Sutra that are, you know, you can kind of look at them on a superficial level, but if you are digging down deeply, for instance, in the Gita, um, the idea of, you know, a, a huge part of that, that book is the idea of doing work without, you know, 
attachment to the fruits of the action, which everyone says, oh yeah, that's the gate, and it's working out fruits of the action. <laughs> it's really easy to yeah. say. <laughs> and then to really think, well, what does that actually mean? And to embody that feeling rather than... Um, it, rather than just say, okay, I understand it. That's what it means. To er, just like with the yoga practice where every day it's going to be different and every day you have to say, what does this truly mean in my body? That's what these texts, whether they're yoga texts or you know, religious texts from other religions or Buddhist texts, that's what they're trying to get us to do. Or Plato, you know, that's what he was trying to get us to do, is to wake up what you know, our natural intelligence to say, let me really see what's going on here today. And so when I say I want to practice till the end of my life, I do, I, but I don't necessarily mean I'll be doing primary series till the day I die. But maybe, especially if, you know, who knows, you could die today, I could die today. But, <laughs> you know, if if I live to be as old as I plan to be, you know, I would love to be able to feel that I am embracing a sense of inner awareness and being awake, quote-unquote awake at that moment of transition from life to death, being as conscious as possible at that moment. And I may or may not be, and I know that. But if I can aim at that, then at least I'm awake for the moments that come before it. You work with people in end-of-life well, I work with people who work with people. You so, work with and I have lots of experience with friends and family and, um, you know, people. It's not an official job um, that I work with people. In. But you don't shy away from it. I don't shy away with it. And I was actually thinking about it last night because of um, the fact that, you know, I have this desire in life to not shy away from difficult things. And I'm thinking, why is why am I cursed with that? And why do I feel that, that it, it's not like I want to put myself into it. It's that I, I realized w- what happened was we were watching some s- silly TV show and there were people lying to each other on the show. And it just made me so uncomfortable I had to leave the room because it, they were manipulating each other through these lies. Meanwhile, I could watch, like, you know, uh, Game of Thrones or something, and people's heads are being cut off, and I'm like, well, that's awful. Maybe I'll close my eyes for that, but it doesn't make me leave the room. But when they're lying, it just... And I was thinking, what's up with that? Why does that make me... What is that saying about me? And I realized that when I see something like death or an issue that is... is um, deeply important to me, why do I run to it rather than away from it? And I think it's because those are the moments in our lives, in this world, where personality and uh, opinion and all of that is not relevant. What's relevant is there's an issue, let's say a death that's happening, that's right in front of us. And you either have the opportunity to try to deny that it's going on, or to fix it, or to, you know, run away from it. Or you just go there and you try to show up for it. And You can only be with it. You can only be with it. And with the practice, you can only show up. And so I'm 
that's what made me realize last night why I have this propensity to, to, to go to something that I see as being very troubling, um, like death. And so, yeah, I work with uh, it at the Upaya Zen Center with Joan Halifax and a group of wonderful other faculty members um, who've been there. I've been there now, I think, 18 years. Every year, we have an eight-day training that we do with um, medical professionals from all around the world who come to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And we work with them on contemplative practices that can help them to be uh, better caregivers in their setting of dealing with and working with people who are at the end of their life. And there are also, I, I, I'm one of the three contemplative teachers there, and then there are medical professional teachers who come in and talk about ethics and um, you know, communication and neuroscience and things like that. So it's this amazing work that really informs everything I do. The reason I went there is Megan and I have a running discussion that she loves to go into and I hate to go there. <laughs> and even on the way over here, you asked me, go ahead, tell Mary. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Tell Mary what you asked me when we were driving over here or even some of the questions that I don't want to talk about that you keep wanting to. <laughs> uh, she really just avoids the topic of death. Um, <laughs> just <laughs> all around. Um, and I was talking about exploring um, just... You asked about Shavasana in particular. Yeah, and it being corpse pose. Mm -hmm. And thinking about death while at the end of the practice. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, <laughs> just talking yeah, about that. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing to contemplate. And, and in a way, when we... Part of what happens with anything, whether it's death or shavasana or whatever, is we have a preconception about what it means. So we say death, and you have your idea, I have my idea, we all have these ideas of what it looks like in this solid state or unchanging state. This is what it means to have death. And there may, uh, death obviously with the, you know, um, is one of the roots talked about as, you know, fear of death is talked about as one of the roots of right. suffering. And um, so it's a natural thing for all of us. But part of what I see that abhinivesha meaning is not the fear of the corporeal end to our being, but the dissolution of our ego, the shift out of being the person we imagine ourselves to be, and something deeper or beyond that. And so part of the fear of death, I think, comes from the fear of letting go into the unknown. <laughs> and that's a hard thing to do, is to let that go. And my teacher and f friend who I work with, with Being With Dying, who started that program, Joan Halifax, um, in one of her early teachings, like from 30 years ago, I remember listening to a tape and she had said, you know, that Plato had said that um, he, he felt that it was really important we practice dying more 
because he'd seen his teacher at the time of death and it had really upset him. And so he would say, he, he said, we need to practice that more. And every time we do the corpse, I think, yeah, let's do some philosophy with Plato here. Because at the time of death, you know, and it, who knows what happens after we die? And there are all kinds of theories, but if you can, and I've been around enough people when they've died or as they're in that process, if we can be there with whatever it is that's coming up, then, the, then it is uh, less chaotic, usually, and less frightening, not only for the person who's dying, because very often for the person who's dying, it's not scary, it's not chaotic. It is sometimes, but not always. But we don't want to go. But the others who are around in the room, those are the ones who, if the person who's dying is more uh, clear, they have some sense of relief, too. And, and the person who's more clear doesn't seem to be as chaotic. But one big lesson is you can do all the work you want being as, you know, contemplative, looking at death, I understand death and its impermanence and all of this that yoga is supposed to teach us about and I've been around dying people and then it turns out you happen to be one of the ones who gets to death and there's some really hard stuff and it's not an easy death. Just like with birth, you know, we make birthing plans these days, which how many of them actually turn out to work? Right, they hardly do. They hardly ever do. It's just we make our birth plan so that we can relax a little and not worry about well, what might happen. I have to know. This is what's going to happen. <laughs> and in fact, they seldom do. So practicing dying at the end of each practice and saying, well, that one didn't go so well. Well, I slept through that one, <laughs> you know, or, wow, I had a moment where it was like I was, I wasn't there and I was really connecting deeply to something much bigger than myself. And that might be a good thing, you know. And Patmi Joyce used to always say, you know, that the corpse pose was very, it's one of the most difficult poses, he used to say. And people would laugh and think, ha, ha, ha. But I think he meant that. Yeah, no laughing matter. Yeah. I, I, I'm thinking back now that you're speaking about the way we behave and practice, the way I started practicing, I always left when it came to... In the beginning, I always left. In fact, even now, it's like... It's <laughs> admit so, it, admit it. Yeah, I'm going to admit it. It's like I do the obligatory laying there until your heart rate gets back, and then I'm up and out. Like, yeah. it's it's definitely... And I never put that together yeah. until right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But I think, and Richard and I talk about this a lot, that one of the one of the things that can be problematic with Ashtanga is if we do these physically demanding, rigorous practices and then cut the finishing poses short, which is the tendency, because there's not enough time and we wanted to do the fancy poses and then we run out of time or we don't want to just lie there, just like wasting our lives or whatever. And... If you don't really, like Richard is the master at doing long finishing poses. And, and 
I've seen within my own experience when I do, you know, give in and breeze through shoulder stand, headstand, corpse, that I'm not balanced in the same way. I'm not as compassionate that day, maybe, or I'm not, and I'm not as present with things because um, I just really haven't been in the residue from it long enough. And it's really when you're in the residue from the practice, when, or between poses, where some of the yoga that's really important happens. And so people who sometimes, there are people who do extreme practices, and Ashtanga being one of them, or other forms of, you know, uh, athletics or even um, other contemplative practices that are rigorous, who don't then let their nervous systems assimilate everything. It's not just calming down the nerve endings. It's really, truly assimilating everything. Who can be mean and aggressive and not nice people, even though, you know, yeah, they're doing this fancy yoga practice, but they don't want to do any finishing. And it's not true for everyone, but for some it can be that they're aggressive or they're not tolerant or they're, um, you know, dogmatic. And, and it's in the corpse pose where we really let it, you know, assimilate and we can dissolve. Well, so how can we good. make... <laughs> I know, she's, she's like she's... 25 going on. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> She's always raised me. <laughs> <laughs> that whole idea of re-beginning with each practice, yeah. how can we, if you don't get there, right? If you don't if finish. You, if you don't yeah. finish yeah. each day, I mean, it's each true. one, if you that's don't let great... it die off or yeah. whatever. I'm <laughs> I had never thought, but that's exactly true. But that's yeah. part of our thing is that we see this as such a progressive practice mm-hmm that that's what hit me when I got mm-hmm. to menopause. That's what hits people when they get injured or mm-hmm. they, or a life stage happens, whether you're pregnant or whatever, you know, anything that mm-hmm. that kind of gets in the way of right. you progressing. Of my practice. Of my practice. And yeah. That, but if you looked at it really as each morning rebirthing yeah. that, that where you are today right now, then it, it yeah. doesn't become actually an issue, does yeah. it? And those thoughts will resurface. I mean, that's the thing, is that you might have that insight, or I might have that insight, and then you get into your habitual patterns with it again, or your habitual pattern is, okay, I'm going to make a ritual that it's starting new every day, and that becomes, you know, the first two days, it's really rich and clear, and then you've made it a ritual, and you forget what that actually was, you know, you're not really, truly waking up to that moment that, oh, I'm doing this ritual about not having this become a ritual. So, you know, we, our minds are just, that. that's the very strong mind thing that Padre Joyce was talking to me I about. I was going to ask you about that. What was that that he meant? That I think it's just that exactly that, that, you know, that, you know, all of us have these very, very... Uh, strong, intelligent minds, and our minds have gotten us to where we are now, and I'm very grateful for that, but that they need to let go of their iron grip on knowing what, you know, that they know everything. My mind needs to let it go every now and then, 
and just say, I know nothing. And as I've gotten older, as I've practiced more, as I've been around more students, I've seen how valuable that can be for, you know, waking up, is to say, thank you, mind. Do you mind just sitting over here for a moment while I, you know, I'll give you more information in a moment, but let me see what's actually here now. I need to pause the interview here and just explain something to you. I hadn't actually planned on asking Mary about Patabi Joyce. I mean, remember, I'd been wanting to talk to Mary for years now and long before I had any knowledge of any sexual abuse allegations against him. But as Mary spoke so affectionately and lovingly about Patabi Joyce, I mean, it was clear sitting there the wonderful and profound effect he'd had on her and in her life, her practice. I mean, so many students, right? I couldn't help but wonder how she was doing sorting through her other feelings about his more disturbing behavior. Especially since Mary was the first person that I knew of, at least, within the Ashtanga yoga community, that actually used the words sexual abuse and her teacher's name in the same sentence. It began with a blog. And that blog, it spread like wildfire. And sparking a lot of thoughtful and really necessary debate, especially in this Me Too era, it was a really brave conversation to begin. But Mary's blog would end up thrusting her right into the middle of a huge and heated divide within the community. I mean, people on all sides were and are angry and hurt. And so I asked, not out of curiosity, but really out of concern. Like, how is she doing? How is she doing with it all? And it is like the one thing that will make me cry about all of this. Not the one thing. It is <laughs> one of the things that will. Because my intention has never been to hurt people. My intention has been to see a disaster and run to it and say, how can we um, support one another? How can we respect one another? How can we uh, get through this together? You know, because my work in my own approach to things is I want to work with people. I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to disparage people. I don't want people to disparage me. But as I spoke about earlier in this thing, you know, as a person who was raped as a young woman, who then was in a situation where I felt I couldn't talk about it, I have felt that I can't uh, be part of a um, world anymore where women can't talk about abuses they feel and and abuses they experience and that I just can't do that anymore because it almost killed me and because I more so than that because when I see people suffering it just rips me apart I have really been in awe of you I, I'm, I'm just saying, and I know that you're not feeling that, <laughs> but I need to express that, that there is a process and you have made your process transparent and you have three blogs that you have written on the website and 
this last one, the mm -hmm. taking the pieces mm -hmm. apart, that, that puzzle yes. piece was profound. I mean, was I'm go I, I will have that on the website because I really want people to mm. go back and read that. But I'm really grateful that you've allowed your process at your own expense. It's been at my own expense. At your own expense. And I have... But so what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because thank you. And I think it's really important to... Uh, to recognize that this whole thing is a process. This whole thing is a process. And as I said in that, in the other ones too, from the very beginning, my hope has been that by being honest with each other, by being respectful, by me somehow being allowed to say, this is horrible, this behavior was horrible, and I still have these mixed feelings, and I still have this sense of gratitude and love like those things don't match how can they exist in my psyche that is going to allow me not to get sick that's going to possibly allow others to not get sick and possibly better than all that is going to allow ashtanga yoga or yoga in general to be able to be what it should be which is a means of going deeply into uh, learning and experiencing viscerally the idea of interconnectedness, interpenetration, the fact that there is so much more beyond our own experience, our own personality, that is much more important than any of this. And that's how we can get, you know, some sense of, uh, you know, w whether you want to call it liberation or freedom or connection to who we deeply are inside that can then serve other people that's how we get there <laughs> your inability to sit with lies <laughs> is really wonderful <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> thank you sorry for anyone that um, is listening and wonders why we're ending here we're not <laughs> we're starting. We, we're starting. Um, but I do know yeah. that you have to get to an appointment. And Thank I just, you. I'm just so grateful for the time that you carved out for us here and for your presence out there and, and mm -hmm. to have somebody that we can come to and in, in so many capacities. This conversation was nothing like what I envisioned. Me either. And, <laughs> and amazing. And Thank just you. the beginning. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Ashtanga Dispatch podcast is edited and produced. <laughs> See? <laughs> Today's episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast was edited and hosted by me, Peg Mulqueen, along with Megan Powell. The show is produced by Chris Lucas.